Greetings, and thank you for joining me for a bonus episode of Quite Excellent. Of course, last week we had an episode that included Michael Dubon. He read his poem for us, he shared some insights on the subject of some of my students' readings, and he gave us uh, a much fuller picture of the poem, its contexts, and what it means to make choices as a poet. But what you heard last week was a portion, in fact, a small portion of a much longer conversation, the remainder of which will be found here. I've removed most of the sections you heard last week, so nearly everything is going to be fresh except for a rereading of his poem and maybe one small section from last week that helps to give us some context to some of Michael's elaborations on questions we may have heard a little bit of before. So, not a necessary episode. There's no additional poem this time, just a celebration of this poem and my students' excellent readings, as well as a Q&A at the end that addresses most of the questions my students had for Michael. Thank you for joining me for this episode. I hope you enjoy our conversation. In the wash, arms deep, filth-clad, toilet toil, working at the Ski Tahoe Resort, scrubbing this mess of spiders, disposing the cast-off suppositories, the tracks of geriatric indulgence. Work, where people don't know how to talk to you, where the other housekeepers won't trade Spanish with you because you're not Latino enough, too American, where one day you hear a voice from behind exclaim, no clean, and you turn around to a white man waving his arms pleading, no, no clean, we don't need no clean. Where you can't speak, in, where you can't speak Spanish, can't speak English, where all you can say is, okay, work where you throw up on the carpet after two turkey sandwiches, so hungover you pass out again before vacuuming them up, then see them again in the sink, the toilet too. You scrub up your mess alongside everyone else's, where your fingers fall endlessly, but never pick out all the dirt. Your Guatemalan parents who got you this job scold you for your failings as it might mean their jobs their names already sullied. This job helps pay your parents' rent first, then your own. They made you work. At so young an age, a childhood stained across carpets of empty suites. You blame them for wasting wasteful time, earmarked for young weekends, prove them right, smoked in the units. Eight years drain like hard water. My hands reappear from rubber gloves. I enter any room here, and I'm already gone. A few students were really concerned, actually, with like the state of your relationship with your family and even like your your general well-being, because I think they're so invested in experiencing those kind of hurts in the present. They're not yet at a point where they can kind of look backwards and think, oh, maybe I was too hard on the people putting pressures on me. Do you think looking back now, you you can kind of forgive this feeling of additional pressure that you were seeing at the time? Certainly. 
And just to touch on first what you said, like about like younger people not necessarily being in a place where they can like look back and evaluate and kind of process this. I think that's so important. Like one of my colleagues at the university was saying the other day that um, she wanted to start some sort of like class or program where young college students could like kind of address these traumas and use like psycho-emotional techniques in order to like start to heal through this trauma. So of course, I think that's an important skill to try to learn as soon as one can in order to be able to manage these. And so it did take me a while to like work past a lot of these issues, of course, like you, like you said, there's concern for the speaker's personal well-being in their uh, relationship, because yes, it is like very dark. And I think that's the thing about trauma sometimes too, is like in the moment, it doesn't seem as bad as it seems, but it can be really bad. <laughs> it, could, it could feel almost like a norm, like, oh, this is just how it is every day. Exactly. Yes, I totally agree with that. So, um, so in this case, in retrospect, yes, um, I was able to start to be able to communicate with my parents more. And I think that might be something that happens with um, children of immigrants in general, because as in this poem, too, there's this pull from the tradition of the parents who have like this work ethic from a different culture in a different country. And there's the pull of like the American side and wanting to be cool, right? Like the American teenager is its own like kind of trope. And so there's these pull of these different directions. So with like it, children of immigrants, I feel often this pull manifests and it can create a sort of like both a linguistic and cultural communication barrier between parents. So in this case, that's definitely what's at work. So, but um, in short, uh, I was able to heal that relationship with my parents. I have a very good relationship with them now. Um, and uh, my mom always says she thought I was like gonna be the child that was in the most trouble, but I ended up being the most responsible and, uh, and everything too. So, so she, they're both very happy with me too. <laughs> I'm sure my students will actually be quite relieved of that. <laughs> <laughs> my students actually had a lot to say. You bring up escape and they had a lot to say about this feeling of needing to escape. And I think that is compounded in a very interesting way when you say that your father is your supervisor, because we already established in here, and we'll get to this, the inability to speak to the people around you for a variety of complicated reasons. But on top of that, if they do speak to you, they're speaking to their supervisor's son too. No matter what happens, you're always going to be like the narc. <laughs> like, <laughs> you can't you can't confide or be confided in. That's, wow, that's rough. Um, and it's interesting that, that that doesn't show up in the poem at all. Given this is a poem so much about pressure, it almost feels like, okay, that's too much. I should leave that out <laughs> because it almost becomes unbelievable that there's really that many different conflicting pressures on you at that point. Yeah, I think that's a great commentary on the writing process in, in general. Wes, as you well know, it's like, you'll you'll think of these other elements and you'll say like, where can they fit? Do they fit in the context of the poem? Like, for example, maybe if I were writing this poem, maybe that would be something to put in there in, in some form if it fit. Another revision I was considering for as well is where there's a lot of focus on language in this poem. I thought, well, why didn't I put some more Spanish into it as well? We've actually read a few poems um, from like uh, Jose Oliveras, for example, who integrates Spanish into the poem in ways that don't expect the, the reader even to understand it because it doesn't always try to contextualize what it means. It's for a particular audience, which is, yeah, I can see how that might have worked here. Related, before we move totally away from the money that you're bringing to the family, we've been reading uh, and discussing work and the expectation of work for teenagers in class lately, reading essays from like Toni Morrison and Ben Sasset, things like that. I think in part because of that, one of my students noted 
that despite all the regret and the pain and the difficulty and the stress that's in here, this particular student notes that if he were in a position to contribute money to the family, he would actually feel a sense of pride. Did you, at that point, at that age, did you ever have that or did it come to that later? Um, I would say... Like I like I like how that student contextualizes that and how like that can be like one of the the better ways to internalize this and to feel like you're a contributing member and be supporting your family. But I think for me it came down to these cultural pools because you know being a lower middle class Latino boy and feeling like you never get what you want and then you're forced to have other responsibilities and meantime you're just like envious of the larger like american culture and how that manifests in like younger um, anglo people at that age as well you're just saying like well why do they have all the things why do they get lunch money why do they like not have to work why do they get to go do whatever they want and not get in trouble why are their parents like only do time out and have never hit them in their lives like and and then this other responsibility thrust now you don't not only not have certain things but you have another burden placed upon you where you're being told this is what you have to do you don't have any options about it it's not that you have made the choice to contribute we're telling you this is what you need to do and for a young person you ha you have a lot of emotion you'll have like a strong reaction to a lot of things and so that's like that strong reaction started to instill in me as like the other negative emotions around the job started to compound um like seeing this further escalation of class problems at work on the weekends and at school on the weekdays and then literally cleaning up everyone's waste is just feels like demeaning too so it's too much too wrapped up in those like ideas to um really appreciate that i was doing a little bit a positive definitely more focused on the negative but i would say now i am helping my parents out and they help me out sometimes as well and definitely feels like that symbiotic relationship we should have had then <laughs> yeah it's interesting how you wrap that in uh, the cultural context because the, the dominant American culture, if, if we feel comfortable even using the term like that, given how pluralistic we kind of are, um, but we really do, especially with young people, celebrate choice. In fact, I would argue that even when we talk about what American freedom is, it's really choice. Like employment is about you get to choose the thing you want. Vote is, Voting is about who you, you get to choose, who you vote for, all of those things. And Part of that, I think, is celebrating choice in young people. And there's kind of a, a pretty Anglo idea that if you have a young person and you're giving them choice, then you're building a better American. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense that you, you contextualize that in terms of a cultural identity that doesn't have that specific tradition, especially with an economic burden on top of that. <laughs> this idea of belonging came up a lot. You have coworkers who don't acknowledge you uh, such that there is a feeling of intolerance and being pushed away, such that you enter a room and it says that you're not even there. There's a constant cleaning happening. There's an expectation. You're cleaning up other people's messes. We have people that don't talk to you like a, a human person, as one of my students said. And so you are surrounded by a almost a total discomfort here. Like there's no welcoming voice or action anywhere in the poem, really. It sounds like this makes for a really hard poem to work and revise. Mm, interesting, yeah. Um, 
So I think this is another theme that comes up. Um, well, of course it comes up in, in a lot of authors writing, but in my writing too, is this idea of like insider, outsider. And often like for me, I end up like having, because of this kind of cultural context, like outsider and outsider. Like I have another essay where I write about like being uh, in middle school and like feeling like I didn't fit in growing up in the United States. And I was like, oh, maybe when I go to Guatemala, I'll feel like I, you know, belong, like have this sense of belonging. And it was high school actually, excuse me. However, that didn't come either. So again, there's this feeling of like, well, I'm not quite like all the way Guatemalan, I'm not quite all the way American. Then like in those different contexts, right? In the college, people think I'm also not American. Sometimes I'm like from Europe. And then in work, people like assume I'm just from a generic Latin American country. And so, so indeed, I think, I think that can be a tricky topic to write about and revise. And essentially, I think what I was trying to get at in this poem is like a microcosm of I, I growing up the child of immigrants and not necessarily feeling at home in either one, because of course, in growing up in that position, one isn't necessarily having that tradition of being like an American generationally instilled in them, along with all that brings. Of course, that brings a lot of generational historical trauma in one country that brings uh, positives like generational wealth or negatives like generational poverty. And so that's all definitely tied to the culture. And then on the other end, of course, um, there is the Guatemalan culture, which uh, for a bit of context, right, my parents grew up in this culture where they're working from like seven years old, doing whatever they need to do for the family, selling stuff in the markets, amongst the background of like the Guatemalan civil war, where the government is like killing its people to suppress their voices and using that as a further excuse to commit genocide on the Mayans, uh, where they're where in Latin America, the indigenous peoples and uh, the colonizers intermingled so deeply that most Guatemalan people are like about 50% indigenous, but yet there is so much hate towards the fully indigenous people. So bringing those kinds of like historical context, like into um, a first generation United States citizen is a lot to like, kind of like wrap your head around your identity. So there's definitely often this feeling of like outsider, outsider. Um, kind of feeling yeah there's uh the kind of context you're talking about that's underneath the surface of this poem is like the stuff of like full-length historical books that without the lived experience i think it's really hard to see but now that you mentioned them, i can kind of see those additional pressures that are just kind of outside the frames of the poem Students also said that you were using condescending and and belittling diction in here and as a result it makes this voice the speaker here one that's actually fairly easy to sympathize and maybe even empathize with depending on how close the reader is to this kind of experience as well and they also noted the the syntax the kind of broken english of the white man with the no clean happening here it is a wildly dehumanizing and so in that way we have pretty core building blocks of poetry and the word choice and the structures doing a lot of the the emotional lifting to make this a voice so that it's easy for a reader to to feel on the side of mm -hmm. yeah that is um 
I, I really enjoyed that analysis in terms of like the different kinds of work structure and language can do. So, so like, so there's that emotional side, like you mentioned, like this idea of empathy and sympathy. There's how it looks on the page in terms of the syntax. It's like, it's like, Right, it's kind of, I, I guess that's one thing craft-wise, I was thinking, well, how do I put this on the page, this idea of broken English? And so that's why, I, like I said, along this idea of the exclamation mark, because it's someone like demanding of you and kind of like half shouting because they, they think you don't understand. And so that creates like an image in itself as well, right? And you turn around. So it's just like kind of like this, this turn to see somebody and they just have their mouth wide open and putting out these parked phrases that obviously you didn't need said so loudly and, um, and in that way, right? I don't know why people think broken English in the first place is more effective than, than regular <laughs> communication, but yeah. um, that speaks to that larger cultural theme as well. The exclamation point's a good uh, observation. Uh, I mean, it's not an observation, you wrote the thing, but that is the only place where we get exclamation points and punctuation is always highly tonal. And to that, for that to be the only point where we're almost uh, having a kind of commanding presence to be the white man intruding into the space and belittling the speaker is, is pretty effective and also wildly terrible. <laughs> That's all the analysis that I had, but I still have a number of questions, some of which are, are pretty nitty gritty about the poem uh, itself and also a few about you. Or you have a little bit more time? Yeah, yeah, happy to dig in a little further. Fantastic. Uh, so uh, one of them was from Morgan and she was curious what you meant by the line uh, where you said, uh, the tracks of geriatric indulgence. What were you suggesting there? You mentioned like the, the cast off suppositories earlier, but without being too graphic, <laughs> what are yes. those geriatric indulgences you're alluding to? I guess, I guess maybe first contextualizing, right? The use of geriatric in this is that um, the off the clientele of this timeshare resort was often old, older, wealthier people. So there comes mm -hmm. the indulgence as well. But of course the indulgence in this is turned on like from that traditional of like indulging in fun stuff to like the, the grossness that comes from this indulgence that I'm left to um, clean mm -hmm. off like cast off suppositories. And so what I mean like by tracks is of course there's, there's multiple <laughs> things to that, but with the suppositories in particular, right. Um, is um, it's almost like twisted breadcrumbs. You're like, what is, what is this yeah. thing? <laughs> you're, you're a, you're a, you're a track. You're almost like an archeologist, like going through the detritus of some really gross people. <laughs> totally. And the first time I was like, Oh, is this a CO2 cartridge? Like, what is this? And then I like have my glove on and pick it up. I'm like, oh my God, that is disgusting. So yeah. like, um, yeah. The, uh, so. The, the humble neoprene glove really does a lot of labor in, uh, <laughs> in, in that environment, I see. Um, <laughs> yes. So uh, this is a question uh, about some structural uh, choices. You said, a student said, is there a significant reason why the first definition for work uses a comma, and this is where you say, where people don't know how to talk to you, but the second time you define work, you're using a colon, where you say, where you throw up on the carpet after two turkey sandwiches, and it's a lengthier explanation of what work is. So why the, why the different punctuation between those two? Good question. I would say... 
It's a very nitty gritty poetry question. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. And I think I could be like, you know, convinced either way, like in a revision, like, you know, with the right context, like that, that it could go, you know, with a colon or that. But like, as a poem as it is now, I would say like the structural meaning of using the comma in the first work where people don't know how to talk to you is that it's like all based around this idea of communication. So it's like work, soft pause, where people don't know how to talk to you. So it's like getting out like these words that the speaker can communicate, but that nobody else is aware of. So it's not like this hard pause. Um, and then in the second work with a colon, um, like you said, it is more of a drawn out exp ex uh, explanation there um, of, of sequence of events. And so I think that's what I was going for is like, and similar to what I talked to about like this kind of out of body experience, it's like work, colon like look out for what's coming next because it's gonna be like a series uh, in this case of messy things it's not as easy as communicating that you don't know uh, how uh, people that you know that people don't know how to talk to you this is tougher you're like literally vomiting something onto the page with that's that uh proceeds the colon <laughs> so, we, so we have like a an avalanche of things here that there's some unnameable idea in there somewhere, but saying it succinctly, soft pause, is hard. I, I can see that. I think also practically, uh, because you do have other commas in that stanza, you'd, you'd run the risk of maybe feeling like the work is just a, a piece of those pieces, whereas the colon says, work is all of these things and also what's unstated. Totally agree. That's a great um, just structural grammatical um, observation that is exactly how it's functioning. So I feel like some of these questions we've already addressed, I'll bring them up because I think they were good, but I think we've hit them already. Uh, Delcy mm -hmm. asked if there was a part of the poem that you look back on and think differently now than when you initially wrote it. And you mentioned before how you can see how the expectations of your parents in slightly different terms now. Um, and another student asked related to this, if you can go back and change things, so maybe about the way you were treated or, or about the way you communicated, this is Isabella asking, would you? I think that's a good question. So I guess one, like, so just to recap some of the, very briefly, some of the things I did touch on with that first um, uh, question um, is that, like I said, right, seeing those weekends and that bitterness differently, seeing the relationship with the parents differently, seeing my relationship to language differently. But I would say maybe like something I haven't hit on that maybe is like an overall is like, there's like a lot of like, like you, we use the words exasperation, numbness, bitterness. Um, but in other ways, like the way I see this job in retrospect is that it did teach me a lot of things, right? It taught me to go to work consistently, even if you're not at a hundred percent, like you should like, which is sometimes of course, you don't want to go to work when you're not a hundred percent, which is a mistake for sure. But like, I mean, in terms of the responsibility it instilled in that sense, like I have a job, I need to go to it. I can't just not go to my job, I need to work. Work. I need to, and it's like was my first job. So it's like, and I was with it for a long time. So in a lot of ways, it did help me get like through college. It helped me like achieve other things that I needed to achieve. Um, so overall, like I, I see the job not like as bitterly, but I do see like a lot of like surrounding negativity towards it, of course, for both me and my parents and my sister, because they all had very terrible experiences as well. So it's definitely a much more complex, like retrospective look at the whole experience rather than this poem, more, like we said, exasperation, numbness, um, uh, wryness, um, 
rawness. The, the, the second one there was, if you can go back and change the way you respond to these situations, change, affect the way that you felt you were, like you were being treated, maybe communicate differently, would you and how would you? Yeah, that's such a great question and definitely something I think about all the time. <laughs> so lots of things I would change for sure. So one, of course, like I would say maybe the primary one is just like focusing on going to work and just like just treat it treat it more like it was a choice, more of a choice. Because eventually, right, when you are in a position, it's a choice to react to it one way or another. So I wish I would have chosen to react to it more positively, like just make sure I'm going to bed like a little earlier so I can be my best <laughs> the next day and make sure I'm not drinking till like four in the morning the night before, which like, um, yes, like as we mentioned before, is like a form of self abuse at, at, at any age, this kind of in, indulgence. And, um, and so, yes, and that's of course another thing I wouldn't have been drinking, like, especially like towards the extent and the, and towards the purpose of like trying to fit in and feel like this release, I would just, I would just definitely feel more at peace, like looking at it, going back, just focusing on what I needed to do, even though it sucks being like, okay, this is just what I need to do. I'm going to go through it anyway, make the best of it. And then spend my remaining hours doing other things that are more fulfilling, like, like at that time, engaging more with my writing, like at that time, trying to connect with my parents more, like, um, pursuing learning the language further um so spending my time in more healthy ways the rest of the week so by the time the weekend came i wasn't like imploding further and digging a deeper hole so essentially just approaching the whole thing from a much more gross mindset rather than a yeah. static mindset <laughs> Okay. Uh, I mentioned before that students really did uh, take to heart the personal struggles that you were having with your parents and the, and the difficulties of the relationship you describe here, uh, which leads uh, Parker to ask, did you ever feel like you wanted to get revenge on your parents? <laughs> yeah, that's such a good question and a relatable one. I think um, maybe a lot, most of us have felt that at one time, like, oh, I'll show them whatever, whatever, to whatever varying degree. So um yeah yeah and i think that comes up in the poem it's like well i have to be here anyway i'm here all the time i'm just going to do it on my terms i don't care if i smoke in the units i don't care if i show up super drunk to work and need to pass out like in well not show up drunk but show up hungover so where you're essentially still like drunk yeah so just definitely a very negative manifestation of all um this idea of like oh i'll show them um, but of course, eventually that, that turned more positive. It's like this, of course, from the birth of my little brother to like this stage of teenage dumb, like there was a sense that I was slipping. My parents felt like I was slipping away from them. And of course, I think that can happen with middle children in general too. And just children, even if without siblings, right? The sense of slipping by the time they get to teenagehood. And so this, um, pursuit of fruitless intoxication 
um, definitely was like a complete loss of face faith for them to where they're like, well, now he's definitely not going to make it. The best we can do is like keep him doing something where he completely doesn't self-destruct. So on that point, when I started to like kind of come out of that and like start to manifest some, some goals um, like completing college, then I was like, well, I'm going to show them that I'm not a complete failure and that I'm getting a handle on these things. <laughs> so, so here you are having these little, these mini rebellions and smoking the units and, and drinking and throwing up and having to clean up after it. And your parents are responding with, my goodness, now we have to really reel them in to which you go, okay, I got to rebel even more. <laughs> um, knowing, knowing that your family does feature in this poem, I think this is a good question to ask. Shashir was curious what your intended audience was. Did you write this with them in mind or anyone else in mind? Hmm. That's a good question. So this publication, and, and I think you, pre, you, you did um, indeed preface the kind of poetry they publish um, uh, in, in the last podcast episode, um, was like, I guess, like, you know, social, cultural issues, marginalized groups. So this was like the perfect, like, publication for that, like, audience, like, in terms of, like, the finished product. But of course, there's varying levels of debate, of course, on, like, considering the ideal audience. Um, and who's reading, right? Because that's loaded with a bunch of cultural traditional issues. So I think that is a great question to ask myself, like as the author, like what audience do I have in mind? So who's like my ideal reader for this poem? So I would say it definitely began for myself. Like this is like working through some issues with the initials draft. Then as it starts to form for like an actual audience, I would say, yes, I would say probably like similarly, um, first uh, generation United States youth who are, have like experienced a sense of like cultural and identity dissociation and are just kind of like working through trauma would be like a very specific audience. My parents, I, I like, that's a good question about the parents too, right? Um, so I am going to show them this poem, but I'm of course hesitant to as well, because it is like loaded with a lot of feelings. Oh, they haven't seen it yet. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to show it to them, but uh, I'm just are, are working they, up to are it. They, are they on Facebook? Because I've, Terry DeBarger mm -hmm. shared it, uh, Topher South shared it, you're tagged <laughs> in it. Are they going to run into it on accident and, and give you a call? Michael, Michael, we need to talk. <laughs> no, that's a great question, though. So they aren't on social media. Um, that's another cultural thing for sure. It's like they're not very technology savvy. My mom's just getting uh, uh, into the computer um, more these days. Um, I did share it with my sister, which was interesting, which I was initially hesitant to share with her, like, you know, because I don't know how she's internalized its experiences because we haven't really talked about it. And she was there longer than I was too, um, and younger age than I was, but she she didn't manifest it in the same ways and not to the negative extent that I did, at least at the time. Um, but of course she still has trauma from that. But, um, but she really enjoyed the poem and she's, thought it was like just like excellently crafted. So I really appreciate her saying that. And she's an excellent writer as well. So on that level, I also appreciate it, it too. Um, so um, yeah, no, there's not any way my parents are gonna run into it accidentally. I just need to like show it to them and I think they'll enjoy it, but it's just like a personal thing. And I'm sure like they'll feel some things about it too. Like I can imagine my mom crying a little bit. So, but like, it won't be like a, like a disaster. It'll be probably more like cathartic, I, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> 
So there are also some questions related to you and uh, your experience as a poet, as a, as a person. One of those was from Sani. She was curious, like, when you look back at your childhood in the aggregate, like overall, what what primary emotion do you associate that? Because obviously this is a, a poem specific to a, a portion of that experience and interactions in a particular environment in particular. So when you look back overall, how what primary emotion would you use to describe your childhood? Mm. And you're that trying to condense easy. a ridiculous amount of experience <laughs> into a limited number of words. Yeah. Sonia is expecting a lot from you, but I think it's a good question too. <laughs> I think it is an excellent question and it does make one like prioritize that. Um, so I'll say maybe the primary tone, but I'll like, which is kind of like more somber, but I'll like support with like a secondary tone to like make it a little like, you know, <laughs> a true the true brightness in it so like i would say like one of the primary the maybe the primary emotions i come to in my writing which doesn't always like maybe manifest on the page but like i'll, I'll feel overwhelmed with like regret because like i wish i would have been better to everyone i wish i would have been better to my parents better to my siblings better to myself better to my friends better like in terms of my aspirations, um, better in terms of self-educating myself. So like there's a lot of regret um, in, in those senses, which often like, like I, you know, of course work past, but it can, it can feel like overwhelming at times thinking about these, um, these thoughts of how I could have made things better had I made effort. And of course, like, you know, we all think that and, and stuff too, and you don't, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And when you're certain ages, you don't know that your actions are having such like a large impact. But at a certain point, right, like at a, t a teenage years, you can start to like see like, okay, the decisions I'm making are having like bigger effects and I should like start to make positive changes towards like the place I want to be at that is hopefully a good place for me and the people I, I care about. Um, and so, right, in terms of these teenage years and young adult years too, I guess that's maybe where some of the most regret comes out because that is the point where I could have made some choices. Um, but on the other end, like, you know, like childhood and um, otherwise, like the secondary emotion is I feel a lot of love and support too, despite the complications of all these things. I love myself enough to keep persevering. I always felt love and support from my parents, despite them being overbearing at times and being like not culturally cued into the culture I was growing up in in that kind of conflict. And I feel a lot of like love for my friends who I'm still friends with from childhood, um, despite how poorly we might and toxically we might have treated each other. So there's definitely like the silver lining to, to it all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was a, it was a big ask, but I think you managed it well. Um, <laughs> Maya asks, when did you decide to be a poet? So like, when you're obviously you've probably been writing most poets most people i think express themselves pretty frequently in writing and, and for some people that kind of dissipates over time for others it continues to be like a an, an anchor a way of figuring stuff out is was there a moment for you where you're like yes i'm going to continue to do this i'm going to have this kind of poetic identity that's important to me i think you know maybe starting from initially it's like this 
you know, everyone feels this creative pool in their own ways. You know, for some people it's writing, for some people it's art, for some people it's multimedia. Other, of course, variations are endless in terms of, of the way people feel and internalize this pool and how it works out with their like own context and life situation. So for me, I guess like one of the formative experience, which led me to start writing in, in my other, because my main preferred genres are creative nonfiction and poetry. So like the main event that kind of got me into writing um, was like in high school, I got kicked out of my um, toxically masculine friend group because, well, of course I wasn't like acting all that kindly in return and neither were they, but I was like the scapegoat in that situation. So just like band, having no friends, um, just having relied on this group of similarly like-minded um, boys, essentially, because we were just children, um, mm. then I was just alone and I was too shy to make friends again. And so I just like started writing and I was like just journaling like my everyday to help find a sense of purpose. And so that was like one of the first creative nonfiction stories I wrote when I was younger was like dealing with this exile, so to speak. And then with poetry, just starting to see like, you know, in my first poetry classes at Truckee Meadows Community College with like some really awesome creative writing professors, like I started to see like, oh, you can do a lot more with the words and the craft of the words themselves like not everything has to be like a narrative and of course this poem has like narrative elements and that's because like I, I do enjoy narrative but it's not like it isn't a like a piece of creative nonfiction. it is a poem so and maybe it's some sort of hybrid in between that too but um but I would say yeah so like that initial kind of writing then seeing like that like you know, trying to find what what career I was in myself um, as I was navigating community college, seeing that love for language, saying like, okay, I want to pursue this further in the writing, see how I can grow in these ways. All that eventually taking me to an MFA program where I'm like, okay, now I want to take it to the next level and gain the tools I need in order to be a lifelong writer for my individual path. Because of course, not everybody needs to attend an MFA program to be a writer. So so like in that sense too, I would say for like, you know, advice for anybody to be a reader and writer, which you, you will hear often and that many other authors have said, right, is just do read, read and write and learn from your missteps and hopefully have a good group of people around you who are interested in the same thing, who can help guide you in ways yeah. that'll help you develop. <laughs> this, is a, this is a question for me, actually. I frequently, when we do, I have a creative writing class. We do a fair amount of poetry in there. Uh, and one thing that I frequently struggle with, uh, especially with poetry, is that students, and again, these are teenagers, but when they write a poem, there's an association with poetry as being something so personal and raw that like, once you get words on the page, you're like, okay, I've done it. I can't touch it again. I've written perfection. And getting them to think about the flexibility of language and how revision is a part of understanding those ideas with greater clarity. It's, it's hard. So I'm kind of curious when you were writing this, like how, how long do you imagine here's the beginning of this poem as I understand it to be a poem. And here's the point at which I, I have to take my hands away and call it complete. Even if there's things I want to change, I have to call it complete. Like what was that space? Yeah. So, so just the whole, like from this poem's inception to publication was three years. Like I wrote this in a class, like as a prompt, um, a creative nonfiction prompt. 
and then it was just kind of trying to play with like more abstract imagery and, and like kind of like elevated language and then just like returning it, like putting it down, working on other stops or turning to it um, for those purposes, like trying to get some distance between it and seeing like, what is it I really want to say? Like, I mean, I think that's one thing that always comes up in, in any kind of learning is being purposeful. It's like, you, if you are writing for an audience and not just yourself, like what do you want them to leave with? Like what feelings do you want them to leave with? What thoughts do you want to leave them with them with? And of course that doesn't always match up to how the reader internalizes it, which is mm -hmm. a beautiful thing in itself. Like the reader can take something completely different than the writer thought it would come up. So um, so yeah, so that's where I start from inception, come back to it then finally um, with uh, some peers that like are writers as well. I was like, okay, what do you all think about this? Like, what? How can I make this more of a functioning poem? And they had great like suggestions, and then I just implemented those suggestions. And then I'm like, okay, well, I'm trying to be a, like continuing to build my writing publication resume. I need to be sending things out. This feels like at a place at this current draft that I can send it out. If it doesn't get accepted, then you know I either need to like research a different publication or I need to do something else with a poem to tailor it for different publication or to refine the poem itself. Um, so I'd say that that was the overall process. And I really like what you said too about like when you initially write something, there's a lot of emotion attached to it. And I think that's great for for like a, a kind of sense of catharsis, but it can also like, like I think that's one of the great things about returning to the poem is like every time you return to it, you'll see what you wrote in different ways with your different experiences and different perspective in that moment. So you'll add things and change things and structure syntax and imagery and word choice um, to suit uh, wherever you are in that moment. And then at that moment, you may feel like, okay, if I'm writing for this audience, I think it might be ready to go. Let's give it a shot. And you never know till you try. So, so yeah. Okay. Uh, once you didn't actually have a question, he actually specifically said, I don't have one. Just tell him, good job. I really enjoyed the poem. <laughs> um, and uh, on the topic of poetry in general, I had a student ask, when you're reading a poem, what do you look for? Like what what satisfies you that makes you go, oh, this is this is working? So I would say I see those as kind of like two separate questions. So like one, what I'm looking for, like in is like analytically is like craft. So I'm looking like where are they breaking the lines? What are the the sounds on the page and what are the sounds verbally? Um, what are the word choice? What is the use of white space? What is the um, level of abstraction or experimentation? Um, what are the tones? Um, so like these, these more kind of like craft oriented elements is kind of like where my analytical brain goes, where like the satisfaction brain goes. Like, I think it's just kind of like this visceral, like, uh, feeling of feeling like mm -hmm. like when one gives a poem uh, a first few reads like it's more about like the sensations like how does it make you feel how does an image make you feel like uh, on a smaller scale right so like like this first line of this poem our arms deep filth clad toilet toil working at the ski tahoe resort elicits elicits some sensations immediately and feelings immediately and then by the time this poem is done the um the reader might have the many different or like an overall sensation so i think when i'm looking for for satisfaction is like even if the feeling is uncomfortable 
um, is that I was like engaged and on board with like feeling like that discomfort or that comfort or that joy or that sorrow. So I guess I'm looking for that, like the visceral reaction. Okay, fantastic. So uh, that is all the things and actually maybe even a little bit more uh, that I had uh, planned. We, we talked for a very long time, so I appreciate you hanging in with me. Um, is there anything that you feel like either related to this poem or to poetry in general or to your own experience that you feel like in the course of our conversation that maybe we've overlooked that you'd like to mention or anything that you is worth saying to these freshmen who are playing with poetry in the way that I think is pretty capable given their age group, like that could be helpful to them, hopefully as young poets and as readers of poetry. And first, yeah, I just want to agree with you, like, yeah, that these students are doing an excellent job of analyzing poetry and reading poetry and engaging with it. Um, so definitely quite capable. One thing to consider, I think, like, as the students go through their education and are reading different kinds of poems is like, of course, everyone's going to interact with like the canon of poetry. And, you know, I think that, uh, uh, and that can be a good thing in itself in the, its own way. The supposed great works. Yeah, the great works. And of course, they, those are very valuable in their own way, but I think those shouldn't be like left un, unquestioned, right? There's a lot more discussion about like where the traditions and expectations of literature and poetry are coming from and who is telling them and where we're learning these. Like, And so in that sense, not to feel like invalidated by like where where you yourself are learning these things, right? If you can learn the same concept from like, um, uh, T.S. Eliot as you can from a contemporary poet um, or yourself even, if you can internalize those lessons in some way, that doesn't make it any less valuable. So I think that's one thing to consider is like kind of like this larger cultural scope of who, who gets to say what and how do they get to say it. Um, so definitely like don't feel invalidated if you're approaching craft or poetry from a different perspective than maybe like one had has approached it in the past or what's traditionally accepted as the right way to read or write and then um yeah and then otherwise i just like to encourage like students if they do like to write yeah just definitely go for it like you know the people who are writers are the people who write. Like that doesn't necessarily mean always there's the best. There's probably like a lot of potentially talented writers out there who would give us some of the best stories we've ever read or heard, but if they haven't written them down, we're never going to read or see them. So like if if writing is something you want to pursue, just just do it and go for it and incorporate it into your daily practice. Like 15 minutes every few days can do a lot. And if you can just gradually increase that or just do what you can and, you know, we all have busy schedules, like that's just something definitely worthwhile because why, why not you? If it, if someone is going to do it, why, why not you? Because your voice is just as, as valuable and, engaging and dynamic as, as anybody else's has the potential to be. So I just, you know, want to send out that encouragement. It's <laughs> fantastic. That's a great play to leave off too. I, I really appreciate uh, you spending so much of your time uh, with me today on a Saturday. Well, we went from morning to afternoon technically. So we've been at it a while. So thank you so much. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Wes. It's definitely a pleasure and appreciate um, all the students' questions and great analysis and the time and energy they took with my poem and um, really appreciated all your thoughtful questions and time and energy too and um, collaborating on this with me. So yeah, thank you all for this very wonderful experience. Thank <laughs> you.